do look forward to when we talk about those things because we need encouragement. We need your help, Lord. And, and Lord, I pray that as we will gather that we will be encouraged in those areas, whatever state that we find ourselves in. And Lord, I pray that tonight you're, you're not done with us as we've studied First and Second Kings and learned so many lessons um, in uh, these things uh, that we've talked about. And Lord, we see the captivity of Judah now being taken off. And Lord, we know that we can learn from mistakes, but it doesn't have to be our own mistakes. And we see very clearly, just as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that these things in the Old Testament are written to us as examples. And Lord, that we can learn tonight what happens if we continue in disobedience and in sin, that there is captivity that there's blindness that comes. It's just bad news. So, Lord, even though it's, it's not the easiest text that we read, it's very important for us to understand. You've written this for us to learn and be instructed and edified. So please do that right now as we just study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 24, verse 1, we read, In the days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and then he turned and rebelled against him. And you recall that as we opened up our study in First and Second Kings, that we saw as we opened up First Kings that David, he was at the end of his life, and David, he would reign about 1000 B.C. And so you can put that date there, and David was one that brought the nation into unity. He brought the nation peace because he defeated his enemies all around him. He really brought the nation into prosperity that Solomon would benefit from. And so after the death of David, that man after God's own heart, Solomon would reign. And we saw in the early chapters of 1 King that Solomon was the one that built the temple. It was a magnificent temple. And you recall that in 1 Kings chapter 8 that when they dedicated the temple, that it was such a glorious time in their history. They had a great feast for two weeks. And at that time that we see that there was great abundance, there was great blessing, there was great prosperity that was going on in the kingdom. It tells us that every man was sitting under his own fig tree and eating from his own vineyard. Um, there was uh, just gladness of heart as people went home from that dedication of the temple with just uh, joy in their hearts for all that the Lord had done. But at that point, things began to go downhill, that is, spiritually. Because Solomon, at the end of his life, as you saw, having those 700 wives and 300 concubines, many of those wives that he had were foreign wives that were ones that believed in false gods. And Solomon was given over to idol worship and the false worship. He even built temples to those false gods and uh, burning incense to those false gods. So we see that idol worship was introduced back into the nation once again. And we know that after Solomon's reign, that his son Rehoboam comes on the throne. That's where the ten northern tribes broke away from Rehoboam, and we had the house of Israel. The house of Israel, as we saw beginning with King Jeroboam, who introduced those two temples dedicated to the golden calf, was plunged into idol worship. And there were 19 kings of the house of Israel up north, and every single one of those kings were idol worshipers. 
And so the house of Israel, as we saw the prophets coming on the scene, Elijah, that fiery prophet that would uh, come and, and speak, and then Elisha, they refused to listen to the prophets of God. And starting in about 732 B.C., they would begin to go off into captivity by the mighty Assyrians. Those two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River would go off into captivity first, and then the rest of those ten tribes the completion in 722 B.C. where they're taken off and then the Assyrians begin to uh, populate that area in Samaria. And of course their offspring is what is known as the Samaritans that you read about in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. So that took place and then the Assyrians flexing their muscles began to make their way into Judah. And you saw recently in our study that in chapter 19 of Second Kings, they come to, it's about 715 B.C., and they surround Jerusalem as they come to Jerusalem. They hurl threats against Hezekiah and tell him to surrender. We're going to destroy the city. And we saw that God would intervene, didn't he? And it was the Lord that sent an angel that killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers all in one night. So the mighty hand of God working on behalf of Judah and Hezekiah, who was a good king and a godly king. After that, what happens is the Assyrians begin to decline in power. And so time goes on. And you recall that it was Hezekiah at that time that when those emissaries, those ambassadors from Babylon came to see him, you recall in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, that it was Hezekiah that was told that you're going to die. And Hezekiah, he was you know, weeping and crying out to the Lord. And the Lord said, okay, Hezekiah, I'm going to extend your life for 15 years. And he was healed of his sickness. Those ambassadors from Babylon came to see him. He showed them everything. He showed them the treasuries of, of the temple and of the kingdom. And it was Isaiah that saw that and heard about it. And Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, listen, the time's going to come, not in your day, Hezekiah, but the time's going to come when the, this Babylon, that is just a small empire at this time, that is going to rise to power, that it's going to come to Jerusalem, it's going to seize Jerusalem, it's going to take the treasuries away out of the temple, and then take the choice men of Judah away captive as well. And so that's what we're going to read about as we continue here in 2 Kings and as we finish it here tonight, that Judah goes off into captivity. Now, well, what we're going to see is that um, the captivity takes three waves or three stages. The first one in 605 B.C., and then the second one in 586 B.C., and then finally Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C., and we'll talk about that specifically as we go through these chapters. You saw as you were with us and as we read, Josiah was the last of the good kings on the scene that brought reforms. And so Josiah was killed up in Megiddo as he was trying to come against the Egyptians. And now we see that Jehoiakim, that he was ruling in Judah, who is an evil king. And now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and he is doing um, this um, this siege against uh, Judah and Jehoiakim became his vassal as we read for three years and he turned and rebelled against him. So here is the first wave of captivity. What was taking place is, is that um, Babylon goes to battle against the Egyptians. 
The Egyptians are going to try to keep Babylon from taking over, you know, all of the um, northern Africa and, uh, the, you know, the known world in that area. So they go to war, and they have this battle. It's a famous battle called Shar Shemesh. And what happens is, is that the Babylonians, led by this man Nebuchadnezzar, who's the general, he defeats the Egyptians. He pursues the Egyptians all the way down south to the Sinai. And while Nebuchadnezzar is doing that, he gets word that his father had died. So Nebuchadnezzar has to get back to Babylon. Babylon is in that area which today is called Iraq. So he has to travel from Sinai, clear over in Egypt, all the way over to Babylon. History records that he did it in two weeks, which was an incredible uh, quick time and a fast time back in those days because they didn't have you know, planes, trains, and automobiles. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's trying to get back so he can you know, secure the succession to the throne. And on his way back, guess where he stops? He stops in Jerusalem. And he stops in Jerusalem. He takes some of the few choice men of Judah captive at that time. One of those men was named Daniel. Daniel's about 17 years old. And his three friends, his three friends who are known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they go off into Babylon. They begin to be trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government, Daniel chapter 1. And so uh, his three friends uh, took on Babylonian names, or they were given Babylonian names, and known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that takes place in 605 B.C. And so Nebuchadnezzar, hurrying back, took maybe a few of the treasures of the temple back with him at that time. So as he's there, and he's gone for a little bit of time, Jehoiakim, he thought he could take advantage of, of Nebuchadnezzar being out of Jerusalem, and he begins to rebel. So we continue reading in verse 2, And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon, and he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which is spoken by his servants, the prophets. And surely at the commandment, of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he shed for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. So here we see after the death of Manasseh his name resurfaces, doesn't it? And here is after all these years his name being mentioned once again because he did so much damage to the nation. Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, he reigned longer than any other king of Judah, 55 years, and he also was the most evil king of Judah as well, plunging him deep into all kinds of idol worship and uh, cultic kinds of practices, and, um, and it, it was deep, deep immorality and depravity that was taking place during that time. And the Lord comes along and says, that's it. You're going to go off into captivity. And we saw last week as we read about Josiah, at the grandson of Manasseh, he comes along, Josiah. He's the last of the good kings in Judah. And he restores, you know, true worship. You recall that they're repairing the temple, and the high priest uh, finds, uh, a, a, you know, a copy of the law of God, as you recall, um, as we looked at that. And um, it was uh, read to the king, and we know that as he did, that. Uh, Josiah tore his clothes, and um, he said, So wonder we're in big trouble. And uh, so here was Helkiah, the high priest, 
reading it to Josiah, he tore his clothes, he was cut to the heart, he establishes true worship, he gets rid of all the idols, all, all of the idols out of the temple, he brings reforms to the land. But there wasn't really true revival in most of the hearts of the people. And the reason that we know that is because if you read the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's ministry begins at the reign of Josiah. And even though Josiah, as we know uh, from chapter 22 in verse 19, that he had a, a heart for the Lord, a tender heart, he humbled himself before the Lord, he was one that um, he uh, was uh, dedicated to the Lord. And he was a great king. And even though he brings true worship back, they celebrate the Passover, the people really didn't have a heart towards the Lord. And we talked about there's a big difference between having reforms in your life and having revival in your life. Revival is when the Lord has really touched your heart to where you surrender your heart completely to Him. Reforms is, well, I think it would be good if we go to church and you know, learn some morals or something like that. And people do that all the time. I want my kids to go to church so they learn some morals. You know, they, they learn some good rules or some good you know, uh, things. People say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount and all this. Are there, you know, reforms taking place in your life or is there true revival taking place in your heart? So we talked about that in, in detail. And so even though that there was this taking place, uh, the people turned quickly back into idol worship when Josiah was killed. And so because of the sins of Manasseh, they're going to go off into captivity as we read and now verse 5 the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that they did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah so Jehoiakim rested with his fathers then Jehoiakim his son reigned in his place and the king of Egypt did not come out of the land anymore for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook Egypt to the river Euphrates and so we know that Jehoiakim um, he was uh, as we read this was bound in fetters, as we know from the book of Jeremiah, Second Chronicles chapter 36, and he's carried off to Babylon. And then verse 8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And then his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And so here is uh, Jehoiakim, he continues in his evil ways, um, being an evil king. Jehoiakim is also known in Scripture as Je uh, Jeconiah or Coniah. And now he's king in Jerusalem. And we know that uh, Je uh, Jehoiakim, that is, or uh, Jeconiah, same person, um, God would place a blood curse on Jehoiakim and his descendants. You read about that in Jeremiah chapter 22. And as you read Jeremiah chapter 22, the Lord says that write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now here's the question. Here's Jehoiakim or Jeconiah or Coniah, all the same person. Then we get additional information from the book of Jeremiah and also from Second Chronicles. So this, this blood curse is put on Jeka, uh, Jehoiakim, that is, uh, and, and you think, okay, Messiah is supposed to come through that line, isn't it? Remember David's 
uh, covenant that God made with David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? That David, that from, you know, you is going to come Messiah, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And so we looked at that and we've gone through the kings of Judah that we see that they were compared to David and they, it was the Lord that said that I will spare my city, Jerusalem, for you know, the sake of David. So the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. So the question is, you know, it, it brings a problem. How could Messiah be born of the royal lineage of David if there's a blood curse upon it? But what happens is, as you look at it, and you look at it a little closer, you look at the genealogies of Jesus. You know that in the gospel narratives, there's two genealogies, isn't there? Matthew chapter 1, we're given the royal line through Solomon to Joseph. And in Luke chapter 3, we're given another line through Nathan, David's other son, to Mary. And the reason that that's significant is because here's this blood curse. You know, how's you know, the Messiah going to come if you know, that line is cursed? Well, you see, being born of Mary made Jesus a blood descendant of David, just as God said. But there is no royal line through Mary. That has to come through Joseph. Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph, and thus it gave him all the rights of his father, Joseph, who adopted him. So he had the, the royal blood through Joseph, and yet without the blood curse. And so God works it out. So that's why those genealogies are real important. So here is you know, Jehoiakim, an evil king. He is cursed by the Lord, this blood curse that goes through his line. And we see in verse 13, as he's carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remain except the poorest people of the land. The poorest people would be left so that they would be able to work the land, keep up the vineyards, you know, just not let the land become a wasteland. But verse 15, he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother and the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000 and all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. So let's review this once again. 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, he's on his way back from Egypt, right? He stops in Jerusalem. He takes with him Daniel and his three friends and some others. They're trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government. And then we know, as we read from that time to 598 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar sends these raiding bands of Chaldeans, Syrians and Moabites and Ammonites to besiege Jerusalem. And so that's what we read um, here in this chapter. These armies are under the control of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So they're fighting under the Babylonian banner. Then in 597 B.C., what we're reading here in the text that we just read is the second invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, or the second siege. And more are taken off into captivity. And Ezekiel... He goes off into captivity at this time as well. And as you read here, they're taking the treasuries out of the temple. We're going to see that that's also mentioned in the next chapter, that what wasn't taken, they begin to take the levers apart and, you know, the big 
pools of water that Solomon made and, and the, um, you know, different carts and they're breaking them up and they're taking them away. But they take their treasures away to Babylon to put into the Babylonian temple that's dedicated to false gods. Now, a couple notes here. It is, first of all, a fulfillment of what Isaiah would tell Hezekiah back in 2 Kings chapter 20. The second thing is this is that you remember in Daniel chapter 5, you see the book of Daniel, as Daniel's only about 17 years old, he goes in 605 B.C., he's taken off into captivity. God blesses him to where he becomes Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. But Nebuchadnezzar would die. And we know that Babylon was going to be replaced, according to the prophecies of Daniel, by another empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, which happened historically. That took place in about 536 B.C. When you read in Daniel chapter 5, you read what happened, how that took place. You see, what happened was, is here's Belshazzar. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's having this big party. And what he does is these vessels and these, you know, things that were in the temple, Solomon's temple, that are now being taken out and taken to Babylon. There was cups. There were spoons. There are all kinds of utensils that were taken away. But what happens is, is Belshazzar brings some of those cups that have been in the temple of Babylon that was taken away from Solomon's temple, those utensils that were dedicated to the Lord, used for the service of the Lord. He brings them out that night of Daniel chapter 5. And they're filling those cups full of wine and they're toasting to the God's of gold and silver, of wood and stone, to the Babylonian gods. And Belshazzar's having this big party, and at that time, there's a hand that appeared on the back of the wall and begins to write. You know the story? So the handwriting on the wall, that's where that phrase comes from. Mini, mini, tekel yufarsin. So here is Belshazzar. He sobers up real quick. And it says that as you know, knees knocked together, that his hips were loosed. In other words, uh, he needed a diaper. And as he's so frightened, he screams and he, you know, says, bring out the, the magicians, bring out the astrologers, the wise men to interpret the writing. They couldn't. So the queen mother comes in and says, hey, there's this man that came from the captives of Judah. His name is Daniel. And he has the ability to interpret dreams and and solve these kinds of things. So bring him out and he'll interpret the handwriting. Mini, mini, tarko, you farsen. And so it was Daniel that came out and said that Belshazzar, that your kingdom is finished. God has finished it. It is done. And you've been found, you know, weighed in the balances and wanting. In other words, you're a lightweight, Belshazzar. You've fallen short. And you're going to be killed this night. And the Medes and the Persians are going to take over. And so all of that taking place on the mean, at the same time, Cyrus, who's spoken of in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, he has the Medo-Persian army out there, outside the walls of Babylon. And the Euphrates River would run underneath those tall walls. And what he did is he diverted the flow of the Euphrates River. And he would divert the flow to where they walked under the wall and they went in and they took Babylon. 
So it was on that night that they had taken these vessels that are spoken here and were, you know, mocking God is what they were doing and using these vessels to, in uh, these cups and all of this to, um, you know, uh, to uh, toast to the false gods. The last invasion of Jerusalem is 586 B.C. that we're going to read about in chapter 25. So here is all this that has taken place. And then Zedekiah reigns in Judah. And the king of Babylon, verse 17, Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle king, uh, in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutel, the daughter of Jeremiah and Libna. And he also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah. And he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Jehoiakim, um, Jedekiah, that is, rebelled against the king of Babylon. So what we see happens here is Zedekiah becomes the last king of Judah. He's really a puppet king is what he is. And um, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, again, when you read the book of Jeremiah and compare it to what's happening here, here Second Kings is just kind of giving the facts of what's taking place. But we know that Jeremiah would come to Zedekiah and said, listen, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Don't do that because if you do, it's going to get real ugly and there's going to be great death and devastation. So Jeremiah was warning Zedekiah not to do that, and Zedekiah does do that. So chapter 25, it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem, and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So that the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, 586 B.C., the third and final siege of Jerusalem. This time Jerusalem is destroyed in Solomon's temple. We read in verse 4, Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled by night by way at the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city, and the king went by way of the plain. And the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. And so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. And then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. Wow. So Zedekiah is the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, surround Jerusalem. And they escape Zedekiah somehow and some of the guys, his you know, guys that were officials of the government, they escape and they make it all the way to Jericho in the plains, but they're captured there. And Zedekiah, his sons are executed before him, and then his eyes were plucked out. A couple things here that I think is worth noting. That it reminds me so much of Samson. Samson in the book of Judges, you remember that he continued in sin? He continued to, to play around with sin. It was Samson that was used of God. The strength of Samson was so incredible. And he was raised as a Nazarite. He had that Nazarite vow. He was not to, to drink wine, and yet he would go to the cities of the Philistines, and he was partying. He was not to touch any dead carcass. That was part of the vow that he took. And there he is. He's taking honey out of the dead carcass of a lion. He was not to cut his hair. 
And he begins to play with sin and he continued to compromise. He was a very carnal individual. And he gets mixed up with Delilah. And Delilah is working for the Philistines, trying to figure out where is his strength. And he says, my strength is in my hair. So they cut his hair. And then one of the saddest verses that we have in Scripture is that Samson woke up as she cried out, the Philistines are upon you. And you recall that Samson thought that he could just break whatever was binding him and you know, beat everybody up again. But it says that the Spirit of God was no longer on Samson. He toyed with sin, he toyed with sin, he toyed with sin, and it caught up with him. And they bound him up and they plucked out his eyes. And here is Zedekiah. The prophets had come on the scene all these years, so much different than it was in 1 Kings chapter 8 when everybody went back to their own homes and to their own tents and they had gladness of heart. They were blessed. There was peace and prosperity and great joy that was in the land because they had dedicated the temple. They were worshiping the Lord. They were following after the Lord. But all of a sudden, after these 400 years, we see they're taken off into captivity and Zedekiah is something of an example of really what had taken place in the nation. There was death and there was uh, a blindness that had happened as his eyes were plucked out, as he was bound up. And if there's anything that we can learn from these studies is this, that's what sin will do. It will blind you and it will bind you and it will hold you in captivity. That's why the enemy tries to lure you into sin. There's a blindness that can come. There's captivity that comes. There's being bound up in all kinds of terrible consequences and the repercussions of sin. And it's just bad news. And that's why it's a loving father that says, stay away from it. And live for me because I want to bless you and I want you to experience that abundant life. I think of the contrast between 1 Kings chapter 8 and this chapter because they did not yield to the Lord and look to the Lord. My prayer for all of us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would look to the Lord and know that His ways are true and good and He wants to bless you. He wants you to be free. Jesus said that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's why He's given us His word. And as I prayed, we can learn from mistakes, but it doesn't have to be our own mistakes. We can see here, we know that these things are written as an example and a lesson for us that don't go down the road of sin or compromise because you will find yourself being blinded and bound up and in captivity. And that's what the truth of God's word tells us. He wants you to be free, and you're free as you live in the truth of God and as you live in his love and keep his commandments. Because as John says, this is the love of God that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Every commandment that God gives to you and to me is an expression of his love, and it's not burdensome. It's not that God wants to be a killjoy and ruin your life and you have no fun. You want to really experience life the way it's meant to be experienced and that abundant life, then you follow after the Lord and you be free, and you'll find that your Christianity will be something that is so marvelous and, and wonderful. You'll have gladness of heart, a heart of thanksgiving. You'll be free. You'll just, it'll be an adventure. Why do you want to go after the world that's going to leave you blind and in captivity and all bound up? And don't buy into the world's lies either. 
And the enemy will come along and say, hey, here's a pleasure, here's some fun, here's some prosperity, and it's all a big lie. It's all deception. He's the master deceiver. He's a liar and a thief. And he wants to rob you of a joyful life in the Lord. And here he is, sons killed before him, blinded, taken off to Babylon. Well, we see that, verse 8, and in the fifth month and on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. This guy was mean. He burned the house of the Lord in the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with him, the captain of the guard, broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor in the land as vineyards or vine dressers and farmers. And the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts, the bronze sea, that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans took in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. And they also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, all the bronze utensils which the priests ministered, and the fire pans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver. Captain of the guard took away and two pillars, one sea, and the cart which Solomon made with, for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits. The capital of it was on bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits and the network and pomegranates and all around the capital were of all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with the network. So here the rest of the, you know, things taken away out of the temple, what had remained. You know, what is interesting, when you go to Ezra chapter 1, there's a list of things that were brought back from Babylon, back to the temple. So here there's a list of, you know, what was taken, some of those things. But one thing that is not mentioned is the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies? You know, Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant, okay? <laughs> Just in case if you're new to Old Testament study. We, we've talked about the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies. And it, had, it was just a box, you know, that was made of acacia wood lined with gold. And there was three things in it. There was a jar of manna. There was the Ten Commandments. And there was Aaron's rod. Right. I just wanted to see if you're still listening. <laughs> so those things were in it. And then on top of it was a lid made of pure gold with cherubims in it. And between the cherubim was called the mercy seat. And the Lord said, I will dwell between the cherubim. And only the high priest was allowed to go into the, behind the veil to the Holy of Holies to make atonement on the Day of Atonement. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the, the nation. So it was the most important furnishing that they had. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It's not listed here. It's being taken by the Babylonians. It doesn't mean that the Babylonians didn't take it, but it seems to be absent. So what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know. There's a couple theories. One of the theories that some even will take trips to Ethiopia based on this theory, that during the days of Manasseh, that the Ark of the Covenant, because Manasseh was so wicked and they were put in idols in the temple, that they took the Ark of the Covenant, some of the Levites, they went to Egypt to a little island on the Nile and then ended up going to where the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Ethiopia. 
There's a place in Ethiopia that um, they believe many people, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, and uh, there's a guardian there. Nobody has seen it. Nobody's been in it except for the guardian who guards it day and night. So that's one of the theories. Another theory is this, is that um, the Ark of the Covenant was hid by Jeremiah. The one theory that it ended up in Ethiopia because Manasseh, you know, during his reign, the priests took it out and the Levites and um, went to Egypt and it ended up in Ethiopia. There's a problem with that theory. And it's simply this. Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, he asked for the Ark of the Covenant to be put back into the Holy of Holies. I don't think he would ask for the Ark of the Covenant to be put back into the Holy of Holies if it wasn't around. So there's indication in Scripture it was still around during the days of Josiah. So I think, and this is just my two cents, and really this is all it's worth, that perhaps the Ark of the Covenant was hidden by the priests or by Jeremiah, maybe perhaps under the Temple Mount area. They believe that there's some tunnels that are there, that some of the things were hidden underneath there. There's even claims by one rabbi that they found it, they know where it is. We don't know if those claims are true or not. But again, that's just another theory. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. There is an interesting verse in the book of Jeremiah that says that the Ark of the Covenant will no longer be mentioned or thought of. Um, It is also interesting, as you go fast forward to what is going to be future, that we do know that a temple, a, a third temple is going to be built, and that is the tribulation temple, right, in, in the tribulation period. You go to Jerusalem today to the Temple Institute. they got all the furnishings ready to go, and apparently they have an Ark of the Covenant that they've made as well. So whether that Ark of the Covenant will be put in, whether they know where the Ark of the Covenant is and they'll bring it out at the time that they rebuild the temple under the direction of the Antichrist when he makes a covenant with many for a week, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, um, we're not going to be around. I'm going to be up in heaven. So the Lord's going to rapture us up before all that happens. But it's kind of interesting to think about. So the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know what happened to it. Um, I don't know if the Ark of the Covenant really is going to be, at least it's not going to last there in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because what does the Antichrist do? He sets up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. That's what he does. So just some food for thought when you go to bed. You can kind of think about that and all these things. But it's interesting, all these things that are listed here. Let's finish up verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sarahiah, the chief priest, and Sephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. So we see here that the last leaders of Jerusalem were captured, put to death, and then as we finish here tonight, then he made Gedaliah, the son of Achim, the son of Saphan, the governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now when all the captains of their armies they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor. They came to Gedaliah at Mitzpah, Ishmael the son of Nathaniah. Now, these guys that are listed here in verse 23, you can read all those names, but they're led by this guy, Ishmael. 
what they do is they come to Mitzpah. Why do they come to Mitzpah? Mitzpah, Kana, because Jerusalem has been destroyed, kind of became the spiritual you know, place where they were actually coming up. As you read Jeremiah, uh, the book of Jeremiah in chapters 41 and 42, that they were coming up and doing sacrifices there. So it was kind of the temporary place where they did worship with the Lord. So here's Gedaliah. He's made the governor. Ishmael and some of these guys come and they kill Gedaliah. As you read through verse 26. And they kill him. And here is these guys, as you read and compare it to Jeremiah chapter 41, there's some more guys that came up during that time that Gedaliah is killed. And this Ishmael, what he does is he takes these guys that came up to worship, he kills a lot of them, and he took some of them captive. Well, then this other guy, Jonah, what he does is he's going to try to rescue these captives, and Ishmael ends up taking off in his guise. So there he is. He rescues these captives, and he's thinking, when Babylon finds out that Gedaliah was killed, they're going to wipe us all out. So they go to Jeremiah. They ask him, what should we do? Should we go to Egypt? Jeremiah says, no. If you just stay here, everything will be fine. The, the king's going to find out the truth. Well, they end up going to Egypt. And that's what it says here. But it happened in verse 25. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Netanai, and all these guys, um, all the people, small and great, in the, verse 26, the captains of the armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. They went against the word of the Lord. The Lord said that you guys stay here and it will be okay. You're not going to be put to death. Well, they took off and went to Egypt and they ended up being killed, just as Jeremiah said. So that's another lesson when we get to the book of Jeremiah. And then now it came to pass in the 37th year, the captivity of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, in the 27th day of the month, the evil Merodach. How would you like to have that name? Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So here is Jehoiakim, this rotten guy, that there was a curse. And all of a sudden, after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, we see evil Merodach. He goes to him. He lets him out of prison. And, and this evil king is eating at the king's table. His garments are changed. He's being blessed. So why was he let out of prison? And now why is he eating at the king's table? Nobody knows for sure. But there are, listen, and we're going to end with this. There are some ancient Jewish references that said that Daniel went to talk to Jehoiakim. And he ended up getting saved. And so God found favor with him and he was blessed. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know for sure. But I do know this. That all of us, we were like Jehoiakim. Our sins separated us from God. And as we heard the gospel message and received the gospel message, then all of a sudden the prison that we were in, the captivity to the world, that we were freed, weren't we? And now we belong to the king, and we're going to eat at the king's table. Do you know that? And we have new garments, don't we? We're changed our garments. The filthy rags are taken away, and now we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
That's the wonderful good news. And all this that we've studied that's been hard to look at tonight, we can end with this, that the Lord has saved us. And he has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to sit at the king's table and eat with him because we have favor with the Lord. That's good news. And we are blessed. So live for him. Live for him and be a light to others. And share that with others that are in captivity, that are blinded, that find themselves experiencing terrible consequences and sadness and sorrow and defeat because they don't know the Lord. You and I have wonderful news for them. So may we be like Daniel, Daniel who witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar and stood strong for the Lord. May we strong, stay strong for the Lord as well in our witness, in our service in our life for the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this study and this time that we've had together. And, and Lord, um, it is hard to look at this sometimes and, and see the terrible destruction that came upon Jerusalem, how it laid in rubble, Solomon's temple, all oh, that time where your glory was manifested so powerfully that the priests had to stop ministering. And so, Lord, I just pray tonight if there is anybody by chance that is here going to be listening to this message, they never truly have surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe there's been some kind of reforms that have taken place, but not true revival and surrender to you. That we know that we've been separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died for us. He hung on that cross and made atonement for our sins. He brought redemption, that is, he purchased us by his blood. He made propitiation, that is, as he's the propitiation, he was the satisfaction to a holy God, the satisfaction, the requirement that, that God has for the payment that is needed for our sins. And Lord, now we are justified just as if we'd never sinned a legal term as we come in faith. So I pray that everyone here has, but if there isn't anyone that has come in faith to Jesus Christ, that I pray that you would consider doing that right now as the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart. The good news is Jesus Christ died for you and loves you. And if you believe the Lord Jesus Christ in Him, and as you believe and confess with your mouth, God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. As you surrender, there's repentance that takes place. That is a true turning to him. A, a, a turning and surrender to Jesus and believing in what he did for you and dying on Calvary's cross. And he's alive. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you pray, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior because I believe you died for me. I confess that I am a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me. I surrender my heart to you. I believe you are the Son of God and that you rose from the grave and that you're alive today knocking on the door of my heart. And now I open my heart to you. My life is not my own. I surrender completely to you. And thank you for hearing my prayer, Lord. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And Father, I pray for all of us that are here that we would not buy into the lies and the deception of the world to just live for ourselves to live after the ways of the world but Lord just as the prophets the word was brought to them
to surrender to you. And Lord, they refused. They lived their own lives. They worshiped their own gods. And now they're in captivity. Lord, we know that will happen to us if we're not surrendered to you and following after you. So Lord, I pray that would be our hearts, our desire. Lord, I just want to draw closer to you. I want to know you. Lord, I want to just live in your love. I want to stand on your promises. Lord, I don't want to be deceived by the world. I don't want to, Lord, be one that pursues the pleasures of the world. I live for you. I live for you, Lord. Father, I pray you help all of us to do that. And Lord, that we would go out of this place with a gladness of heart because of your great mercy and grace. But Lord, for freeing us and clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and knowing what a wonderful, glorious future that we have, that we are going to sit at the King's table, the marriage feast of the Lamb. I look forward to that time. So bless everyone here as we go our way tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? If you need prayer for anything tonight or if anybody did make a decision for the Lord tonight, if you're out in a coffee shop and you heard it or anybody at all just needs prayer or or if you did make a decision, I'd like to hear from you and uh, be able to pray with you and give you something that will help you.